I'm Brett from Heinemann. As we begin the new school year, many educators are wondering, is there research we can lean on for the unique situation we find ourselves in? And when we look to research to inform our practice, context is crucial. Both context and research are what Not This But That series editors Colleen Cruz and Nell Duke have been thinking a lot about. Originally edited by Ellen Keene and Nell Duke, the Not This But That series seeks to bridge the gap between research and practice. In 2019, Colleen Cruz joined Nell Duke as the co-series editor. In this conversation, Colleen and Nell discuss what research can tell us for this moment of online learning and what it can't tell us. Colleen started out by asking Nell to reflect on how the Not This But That series began. I'm Nell Duke from the University of Michigan. And I'm Colleen Cruz from Teachers College Reading and Writing Project. And we're co-editors of the book series Not This But That. And we're super excited to be talking to each other a bit about the series and the new directions we are going with it and the state of research and practice in this world that we live in right now. So should we get started? Sounds good. So now I, um, you have been with the series since the beginning and I'm, I'm curious, uh, I know a little bit, but I don't think I know all of how the series came to be. Uh, and I would love to hear a little bit of that, that story. So it, it really came out of a relationship that Ellen Keene and I had. And as many podcast listeners will know, Ellen Keene is a very respected professional developer, um, practitioner, definitely has her, her feet in the worlds of schools and classrooms every day. And I am a researcher. I do spend some time in schools and classrooms and, and have taught, but um, much of my day is spent reading research articles and generating uh, research and research reviews. Um, so we we come from overlapping but distinct worlds and both bring with us a real desire to improve the quality of education in the U.S. and beyond. So we had formed a relationship and we uh, decided that it would make sense to try to bring researchers and professional developers together. So we formed a uh, actually, a few years, we did these conferences that brought some prominent researchers and some prominent professional developers together to share expertise in a two-way street kind of format. And at one of those, we had a session that was about practices that researchers and, and professional developers agree are intractable. <laughs> they're just out there in the field, and they're frustrating to us when we see them, but we don't seem to be able to be successful in uprooting them at a large scale. And that session led to conversations with Heinemann about doing a book series that focuses on these practices that are widespread in U.S. schools, but that both researchers and practitioners, professional developers agree um, probably shouldn't be widespread in U.S. schools. And that's how Not This But That was born. Wow, I like that. And, and it's an interesting angle than Not This But That. What were, How did you end up with that angle? Well, uh, we were actually influenced by the diet craze, eat this, not that. Um, I don't know if you remember hearing about that, but yes. the basic idea was, you know, take something like French fries and instead eat kale chips. And although uh, I honestly don't really seem to be successful in that in my dieting life, in my life as a researcher, uh, I thought that this was a good way to, to frame it. I think it's really helpful to tell people kinds of practices that 
um, research doesn't support, but it's also really helpful to suggest what they could do instead of those practices, right? I feel like, um, you know, practitioners are thoughtful decision makers when they're doing something in the classroom, they have a reason for doing it as a general rule. So we need to tap into what is the reason they're doing it and what would be something that could address that same need, but do it more effectively. So that's how the not this, but that came to be. I've been thinking a lot about, um, I don't know, I think a lot of people are thinking about this, of context and things that are going on. And I feel like I've been revisiting things that have changed considering the recent context of, you know, we keep saying this unprecedented times, but they are truly unprecedented times. So between um, COVID and uh, the political landscape and the Black Lives uh, Matters movement gaining traction, uh, it feels like we're all viewing things in new lenses. And I'm, I'm thinking about the, the books in the series that were published before I came along, I would love to kind of pick your brain. Like, what do you think are the books that people might want to revisit or maybe even pick up that were published in the past that might, considering our context, have a, a fresh angle? That's a great question. I mean, of course, I want people to revisit all of our books, but I think um, certainly one that feels very relevant in this time is No More Telling as Teaching. The mm. subtitle of that one is Less Lecture, More Engaged Learning. And I do worry that some people are reacting to this time by thinking that we can just record lectures um, and have students, you know, watch the lecture and answer questions at the end or, you know, just kind of ways of teaching that maybe are, feel easy to do in a virtual or a remote environment, but that we know don't really foster learning very well. And so that book is full of alternatives to a lecture heavy approach to teaching. And I think many of those alternatives are applicable even today. Um, so for example, there's a lot in there about just peer to peer interaction and the value that peers can have for one another's learning. And so, you know, trying to set up a remote teaching context so that there's opportunity for a lot of interaction among students um, feels really important to me. Yeah, that does sound, that sounds like a perfect text for people to be, to be looking at right now. Another text I think has special relevance right now is the book, No More Mindless Homework. Because in some ways, everything is homework now for a lot of school districts around the country in the sense that, you know, kids are home, students are home um, trying to uh, do a lot of their work without the immediate support of the teacher. And the book, No More Mindless Homework, just goes into a lot of the kinds of activities that kids can be engaged in at home that we have reason to think from research will be productive for them. So, for example, there's a lot about just getting kids reading at home, because mm. that's certainly something that we can all agree is a valuable um, use of their time. So I feel like that book, No More Mindless Homework, has special relevance. And the third one I wanted to offer, um, really connecting in with the nation's growing recognition of how much anti-Black racism affects schooling practices is the book No More Culturally Irrelevant Teaching. Oh, yeah. That that book 
I think is really special in the sense that it gets very practical. I think lots of people realize that we need to engage in culturally relevant and culturally sustaining teaching, but it's hard to get sort of past the theoretical or the broad strokes to like, what does that mean on Monday morning? How does that look different? And I think hard though that is for people, it's particularly hard for educators who work with the youngest students. I think it's harder for them to picture sometimes, like what does it mean for me to be culturally relevant in a kindergarten classroom or a first grade classroom in my teaching? And that book has, the author team just brings a lot of expertise in the early elementary grades. And so I feel like there's a lot in the book that can really bring to life what culturally relevant practice can look like in the early grades of schooling. So those are three that really resonate um, for me. But I'm wondering, are there any forthcoming titles that you want to talk about in relation to the moment that we're in? Before I talk about the forthcoming books, I do want to just stop and like point to a book that just came out, uh, No More Teaching Without Positive Relationships by Howard Milner McCall and Howard. It's an incredible book that I feel like every educator needs to get their hands on. And that's because I think it takes that idea of positive relationships, which I don't know about you, but I always felt was like sort of like soft kind of science. And it shows us how there is actual data, there's actual research to to prove that positive relationships between educators and students make a huge difference, not just in social emotional health, which is important, but also in academic growth. And it does this in, in, in a marriage with really practical steps of not just the research, but what teachers can do on Tuesday. And this notion that, um, that the relationship between teacher and student isn't just like an added bonus, but it is a thing. And one of the other things that I love about this book is its focus on anti-racism and actual practical classroom practices that teachers can put into place um, to create classrooms that welcome and celebrate kids and where they come from and who they are and their identities and build healthy, lasting relationships with their teachers. So it's a great book. And I wanted to mention that before I get into the forthcoming titles. Two of our very upcoming titles, I don't think we have working titles yet for them. One is about um, using tech tools in the classroom in meaningful ways. And um, I think at the time we were just thinking about how do teachers make decisions around that? And how does it feel mindful and purposeful? And now looking at the book, it, it feels even more urgent um, than it did at the time when, you know, we were starting to see one-to-one devices in classrooms around the country, not on a widespread basis. And now it's definitely on a widespread basis. And so how do teachers really use these tools in thoughtful ways um, and teach into them? And so that's one title. And then the other one um, that comes to mind is um, the title that is coming up on trauma and um, being a trauma responsive teacher. And I know that the authors of that have had lots of experience with working with students, both as researchers and practitioners, and they're quite a team. And um, it's interesting knowing their histories, how 
they're bringing that expertise of other events um, in history to this particular context that we're living in and speaking with at least one of the authors about just we don't yet know all of the ripple effects of our current context and how that will be affecting our students. And I think a lot of teachers know that we are going to teach differently. We are teaching differently, but how do we do it in a trauma responsive way? And so I guess that those two books will get you through Wednesday and Thursday. (laughs) Um. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And also a shout out for the forthcoming No More Random Acts of Coaching. Oh, Um, yeah. Part of why I feel like that connects to the moment is that being situated at a university, I'm keenly aware that We have a whole generation of teachers from last year uh, who didn't get to complete their uh, student teaching or their internship in the way that would normally have happened. And we can certainly agree that the cohort coming through, you know, this year and next year as well, things are going to be really different. And I know they'll develop really valuable skills, and but it will be a different set of skills uh, to some degree than what they're likely to use in years forward. And so... I feel like coaching is going to be more important than ever for our newer teachers, making sure that they're getting continued guidance from coaches that is aligned to research, is provided in in a way that is connected to research, and that really um, builds the relationship between and among teachers and coaches that we know is productive. So. Absolutely. I think I was just thinking about that, that I have been doing a lot of work with teachers in the past couple of weeks getting ready for this school year. And I've been working in my position with um, supporting teachers for a long time. And I have never seen teachers more often request support. And because this is this is uncharted territory and like trying to figure these things out. And it can't be random. It really does have to be planful, especially in a world that feels so random right now. And I do think having something like um, like that text to lean on will make a huge difference in, in buildings for sure. One thing that's really encouraging to me from research is that there's some evidence that remote coaching where you don't physically have the coach in the same room, so to speak, with the teacher, but they're watching via video, that that actually is and can be as effective. Um, That research was done pre-COVID, but I think it's quite relevant here. And I feel like that's encouraging that, you know, coaching can go on um, despite all that's happening right now. Yeah, it's wild how some of these um, studies have that felt so strange at the time now almost feel clairvoyant of some sort. So I didn't ask you what drew you to this series. I mean, you are very, 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 very busy. (laughs) You (laughs) you have so much on your plate. What made you want to devote your valuable time to this series? I think people who know me know that I'm a bit of a research groupie. Like I, I read everything that's not nailed down. And it's it's even a running joke amongst my friends of like, are you going to footnote that? Who's the citation? And I do do that. And, and it's, it's the way I live my life. Like I don't buy soap without doing um, some reading into the studies around it. Uh, and so why would I teach without it? And I feel like when it came up that this was something that that I could be involved in. I mean, I was a fan of the series, like a lot of people. And it was the first thing I had seen of its kind, which is what was intriguing to me, because usually 
research lives on one side of the desk and practical books live on the other and never the twain shall meet. And uh, a lot of educators, quite frankly, don't have the time wherewithal or access to sifting through the piles and piles of research to find out what's going to match their particular needs. And I think most researchers don't have the time, energy, or access to practitioners to necessarily think about how to funnel that information that they've discovered to practitioners. And so I loved that it was this marriage of these two seemingly opposite sides who they live in parallel universes a lot of the time, and yet they absolutely have an effect on each other, uh, but don't talk so much. So I do love that. I love that about the series of the bringing that stuff together. So I think it's really important. And I feel like teachers love research, but fine. And they, and they want to know, like, I think it's probably one of the most common questions I get asked in my work with teachers is, well, what does research say about that? And, you know, I think that this series gives teachers that opportunity to look for the topic that is in their craw right now and then find the research to back it up, which I think is a really attractive thing. Well, I'm I'm certainly glad you decided the series was worth your time and energy. <laughs> and I've really enjoyed working with you so much, Colleen, and, and learned a lot from you as well. And I do think that you're really hitting on a, a just a major issue that continues to plague our field where researchers and, and practitioners are not necessarily in conversation in the ways that we wish would be the case. Um, and that these books, because we do require that we have someone writing in the role of researcher and someone writing in the role of practitioner for every book, are one way of putting um, these two in, into conversation more directly. And I think it shows because the books both um, invoke research and um, hopefully, you know, shift mindsets and thinking on the part of readers about what research says on, on particular issues, but at the same time, again, are really practical. Yeah. I think you know that one of my frustrations with uh, researchers is that um, they can get really narrowly focused on the one thing they study and just lose <laughs> the question of how does that fit into a day? So, yeah, I mean, if we if we develop and then study an intervention where we spend an hour a day on vocabulary, kids vocabulary goes up. Yeah. <laughs> but how are we supposed to fit an hour a day of attention to vocabulary with everything else that needs to happen? And so I think one of the things that really is is good for researchers in terms of, of thinking more about practice is, you know, to try to contextualize their finding and their one narrow area of interest into the realities of a school day and a school year. Um, and I really appreciate that you ask some really good questions that push my thinking around how to do that. So, yeah. And I do think, I mean, your point about like, there's, we, I think that's what the moment we're in now, right? Like when with schools reopening, we know masks are helpful, but then classroom teachers are like, but how do I keep them on first graders? You know, like there's, there's so much going on right now. And of course, the research is all still very new. But I feel like that is the constant, the constant push pull of research and practice. And I do think also the accessibility is a big point. I know on social media, frequently teachers are asking, can anyone give me your JSTOR login? Or can anybody give me your because if you're not in the research loop, um, it's not easy to get a hold of the most recent studies 
you can sometimes get like watered down journalism interpreted studies, but it's very difficult to actually find the original studies. And I think that that's that's a beautiful thing about this series as well is is it does it does give that access. Yeah, you've pointed to another real barrier between research and and practice and and that's accessibility of the research itself. You've referred to the physical accessibility, which I think is a big issue, but also just the way that research is written, you know, if if we're reading a study that compares this structural equation model to that structural equation model, unless <laughs> someone has actually studied structural equation modeling, it's going to be really hard to read that study and and pull from it. And so I do think that this translational work between and among both research and practices is really an important piece of the puzzle. And I'll just say that something I appreciate about you, Colleen, and that I think is really important for podcast listeners to think about as well is that, you know, the stance toward research is not, oh, let me go find or cherry pick the one study that supports Mm. what I already thought. And there's a lot of that. I think there's so much of that in the field. I see social media being used very heavily for this purpose, where if I tweet out a study that people like what it found, it gets tweeted out more (laughs) than a study that maybe found something that is unexpected and maybe makes us have to think a little differently about our practice. And I think we've tried very hard in the series, um, and I think you and I try very hard to keep our minds open to the direction that the research points, even if that's not necessarily where we wish it pointed or where Mm -hmm. we thought it pointed or where we used to think it pointed. And I I think that's just really important and something that I I hope that, you know, a lens that everybody can bring to our field um, is keeping that open mindedness and, and seeing, you know, what actual empirical research tells us. Yeah, I think that confirmation bias is, is real. And I think that people really do search out what will make them feel better or look good. And then they just that's their search terms. And Nobody wants to hear the thing that they loved is actually really terrible. (laughs) And uh, especially as a teacher, I hate finding out that something that I did for years and years turned out was like a really poor practice, Uh, sometimes not necessarily harmful, just not great, and sometimes actually kind of harmful. And I think that 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 is a difficult path. And so it's tempting to just find things that will confirm what will make you sleep better at night. And I I think what I love about the series is it pushes against that, is that it it names out the habits that we have. I feel like sometimes as teachers, we just say, that's the thing we've always done. Like we've always had kids learn how to spell words by writing them 10,000 times. And even if there's not really any proof that that's going to be helpful for them, we're going to continue to do that. And I think that that's what I love about this series is it challenges some of our traditions. And some of them are actually right on and some of them are not. So I think that's a a really nice thing to think about. There are a couple books that stand out in my mind as as ones where we were pushing against something that was really popular. One is definitely No More Reading for Junk. Um, Yeah, that book, um, which really takes on the practice of incentivizing children's reading through external rewards that are unrelated to reading, like giving kids stickers or Nerf balls or things like that for reading. And we have reason from both research and theory to think that that's not good, actually, for kids' long-term reading motivation development. So the book takes that on and then goes into 
some things that we have reason to think from research and practice do actually build long-term motivation to read. Another one that comes to mind is no more letter a week. Because in pre-K and K, that's just a really popular way to teach the alphabet. You know, so, so the first week of school is A and the second week of school is B. And it seems really organized and systematic. And in fact, I think sometimes when people call for systematic alphabet instruction, that's where people's minds go. Okay, I'm going to be systematic, you know, first a week on A and then a week on B. And so the book explains why that's definitely not the, the way to um, teach the alphabet and goes into some research supported um, approaches to teaching the alphabet and what makes more sense from a scope and sequence point of view. But again, that was a kind of a hard book to put out there in a way because there are so many people who didn't want to let go of that letter a week approach. I, I mean, I felt that way about no more math fact frenzy. I mean, I, I write about it in the afterword of the book of my, you know, a teacher that I was listening in on and, and he was saying, I'm pretty sure that doing these sprints and drills is not good, but I don't know what else to do. Like literally he just said it out loud in a curriculum conference. And I, I think that so many teachers have a sense that it's not great, but it's, it's that, that backyard tree being home. It's just, we've always done it. And I think that that, that book and what it talks about and how do we actually get math fluency is shocking to a lot of people, like truly shocking. And yet when I tell people about it, they're like, please let me, let me get my hands on it right away because it is, it is quite, quite different than what many of us even grew up with. That's such a good point, Colleen, that sometimes we have a sense of uneasiness around a practice, mm -hmm. but if we don't know what to do instead then it's easy to just keep doing that practice. And um, another book I'm excited about that you were involved in, Colleen, is the No More Science Kits or Texts in Isolation. Yep. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. I, I When that book came out, I was doing a lot of work with teachers at the time about science. And I do think it's, it's actually, it's a very meta book. It's um, in the sense that it's research and practice coming together, but talking about these two parallel tracks in the classroom, literacy and science, as if they don't go together. And I think that book it shows us that it's more than just maybe doing one, one Miss um, Frizzle read aloud and, and calling it a day for science literacy that in fact, science literacy isn't a separate, nice enrichment, but it is the thing. And I feel like, again, crystal ball, but like, aren't we seeing this over and over again? People are not literate in science. They don't know how to read any science. And, and I think in part, it's because of the way we teach it. We teach the literacy separately from science, hands-on, science facts. And I think that book tackles that head on and talks about how do we bring those literacy skills into the science realm and vice versa? And I, I, I think that it could really have a transformative effect. And also, quite frankly, our schools aren't teaching science as much as, as possibly they need to. So also just that of like seeing how, practically speaking, we could bring science back to the forefront to our classrooms, which I, I love about that. One of the things that I find that teachers, administrators, and educators in a whole variety of roles uh, ask me a lot is what does research tell us about now? Like, especially in this environment where we've got 
online fully remote learning versus uh, hybrid, you know, blended situation where kids are going in a couple times a week or every other week or half days or schools that are doing uh, five days a week, but socially distanced. Or I was just talking to a teacher the other day from Alaska where half of her kids don't have phones or Wi-Fi. And so how does she do remote learning without those things? And they're all asking the same question, which what does the research say? And one of the things that I've been saying is be cautious of people who say research says da-da-da in this situation, because the research studies on things like online learning were not in this context. They were usually not with these populations. They were not usually these um, age groups or this widespread. And then secondly, I'm not sure that there even has been time to do this kind of research or in any kind of way that would be useful for people. Uh, And maybe, you know, this is temporary, of course, but like, is there a a way to make decisions for a profession that is supposed to be research-based without research? Like it feels a little bit like trying to build a house on sand. Like it, it, there's nothing sturdy underneath us. And uh, I think, yeah, are there are there ways, is there research we can lean on? Is there just, we're just start launching our own, we're in the vanguard. And we are just a big experimental thing, like Fauci says. I don't know, but I would love to know what your thoughts are about how can research service or does research service at this time? Well, I think that's such a great question. And I completely agree with your caution to practitioners that if people are telling you things like, here's what the research you know, tells us, they're probably making it up um, because we don't have research on a lot of these questions. Like, you know, how, what is the most effective way to run instruction when kids are six feet apart wearing masks? If there are not studies on that, um, to my knowledge in the U.S., um, at least. So um, I'm glad that you're cautioning um, folks to be a little bit skeptical of claims uh, based on research right at the moment. The way I've been approaching it is to try to think about what are some of the things that we know from research that could we could draw on and modify for an online environment. So for example, we know from research that interactive writing has the potential to improve children's achievement of many different early literacy skills. It improves achievement in letter recognition. It improves achievement in writing itself. It improves um, children's phonological awareness. So if we know that interactive writing is an effective tool, the question is, how could we do it remotely? And so I I recorded a pair of videos. We could share the link um, with the podcast potentially. Um, And in one of the videos, I model with a small group of uh, kindergarten and first graders how I do interactive writing over Zoom and using just a simple free Google tool, um, Google Jamboard. So um, that's the kind of approach I've taken is, okay, well, let's go back to what we no. And then let's think about how could we draw on it in an online environment. So another example, we know that it really helps kids to read. Um, at least after the first couple of, of years of schooling, that can be one of the most powerful things that children do at home to foster their long-term literacy development. So 
what what do we know about how to get kids reading that we could apply in this context where they're home a lot and that that might really be good for kids um Another example is that, you know, we know that explicit phonics instruction is really helpful to kids in the early grades. So what kinds of tools are available that could enable us to provide high quality explicit phonics instruction in an online environment? So obviously I'm just giving literacy examples because that's my area, but I think you could use the same approach in other areas. So what do we know about effective math instruction and then which parts of that could we replicate remotely? And I would make the same you use the same kind of logic in a classroom environment. So if we know that shared reading is a helpful opportunity for children, then how can we do that six feet apart? Um, so that's kind of uh, the way I would approach it is, is just use what we do know and then see what kinds of modifications make sense in this environment. Well, I think that, I mean, I'm thinking immediately, I was thinking about math fact frenzy and I was thinking about, like one of the things that they were saying is no, you know, doing these speed drills are not is not a good choice, but there are certain computer programs that are really great. And like, that would be an example, you know, in moderate doses, not spending mm -hmm. six hours a day on it, but that would be an example. But then they also talk about things like kids storytelling their math and um, doing number talks. And that would be, I could imagine in a Zoom classroom or a Flipgrid situation, that those would be really adaptable, even if the modality of communication has changed, the action is the same. Would that be a good math interpretation of that? Uh, totally, absolutely. The, the number talks that you just brought up is such a good example because it also speaks to you know so much research that finds that collaboration among children is associated with greater growth in academic um, achievement. And in fact, even randomized studies where kids are randomly assigned to approaches that emphasize more collaboration, we tend to see higher academic growth. And so when you um, point to number talks, that's a twofer. It, it both... <laughs> Uh, it both is, is a really good way of developing number sense and mathematical understanding. And it's also an opportunity to have children collaborating, building on one another's discourse. So I think that's a great example. These are tough times that we're in. And I do know that there's research around resilience. Um, and I do think families and teachers and educate, I mean, my own kids, uh, school community is talking a lot about you know, resilient kids are resilient, but I think a lot of us are afraid that maybe that's not true. Or what does that look like in these times? Are there are are there studies or things that you can point to in research that could have that applicable action that you're you're pointing to in terms of academics when it comes to resiliency? Two things really spring to mind. The first you've already talked about, Colleen, which is really the power of relationships. So in the research on resilience, one of the things that you find that really fosters resilience in students is the relationships that they have in and outside of the classroom. Um, mm. So we, we can endure hardship better when we have a supportive, consistent presence in our lives of someone mm. to, to be with us through those difficult times. And of course, we hope that, that our students have lots of such people in their lives, whether it's an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or mom or dad or a sibling, and uh, you know, various individuals who are in their school sphere. 
Um, but I think that, that, um, for many kids, um, that consistent and supportive presence in the school environment is so crucial. And so I think that rather than thinking of resilience as something that we hope people have, we can think of resilience as something that we have the power to build in children mm. um, and youth through the relationships that we have with them. So that brings us full circle to the uh, No More Teaching Without Positive Relationships um, book. I think the second thing I'd say about resilience is that it's a concept that allows us to take more of an asset orientation. And although that's always been important, it seems like it's very, very important right now. So we don't bemoan all the things kids didn't learn while they were home, we think, and while they are home, we, we think about what they did learn. My uh, my collaborator, Ernest Morell, professor at University of Notre Dame, um, has made a, a beautiful um, shared a beautiful anecdote about a family that lives near him where um, the, the siblings in the family um, built a motorcycle over the course of a wow. <laughs> or repaired or something, you know, did major work on a motorcycle. Um, and yeah, so so maybe they didn't, you know, get the, the normal test prep or whatever they would have been getting in school last spring, but they built a motorcycle. So how do we build on that? How do we use that as an asset or a bridge to you know, the standards that we're trying to address in school. And um, Ernest, you know, keeps reminding us the kids did nothing wrong here. We, we don't need to come at them with, oh, all the things you missed and all the things you weren't doing and how far behind you're getting. We need to come at them with, you know, look, look at all that you have been doing. Look at what you're experiencing this this event, this this hopefully once in a lifetime event, and you are enduring, and you are here with me, and you you know really taking that kind of you've learned things, and you're going to learn things, and we value you, and you're important to to us and to our work and to the future of our country. I mean, those are the kinds of messages and asset orientations that we want to bring to to the active education right now. And I think that that, that point that you're making. Um you know, is very different, like, you know, in the world that I live in right now, both um, online and, and in like social media and that kind of thing. I think one of the things people are, are bringing up a lot is grit versus asset orientation and like the, the sometimes um, or often racist connotations around grit. Like if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps is a little bit or a lot different than an asset orientation and re resiliency and, valuing students, um, their funds of knowledge and the families they come from and the, some of the most beautiful things that might be happening away from school that have real value that can actually help build that resiliency. And I think that that's, that's a really great point that you're making. I love that. And it really connects, I think, the the pandemic and and COVID nineteen with you know the murder of George Floyd and the increasing recognition of how anti black racism permeates every aspect of schooling, um, because part of how anti black racism manifests is in people's failure to see the assets and the gifts and the genius that is present in every child, and that is 
present in children who are uh, black, children who are indigenous, um, children who are people of color. Um, so I think that in a way, this this thread kind of connects a lot of what we've been talking about, which is really, you know, see our children, every child as a precious gift with, with infinite potential and do all we can to hone our teaching so that we enable them to, to be the best that they can be. Yeah, no, I think that that it is, it absolutely is connected and the, and the beauty, the the focus on the beauty and the focus on the joy and then the focus on truly seeing children that, I don't know, the habit that I think many educators, certainly when I started education, it was something that was in my ed program of the idea of being colorblind was somehow superior. And growing up, you know, I grew up in a, a Latinx home. So we, we always talked about race. And then as soon as I went to grad school, I was probably the first time I was in a predominantly white space, I would talk about people by race and people would say, like, that's rude. You shouldn't mention people's race. And it was sort of pounded in, <laughs> which is like, I don't know. I always, why wouldn't you, they have brown hair. They have, you know, this is their race that like they're black, they're whatever they are. And like, I feel like, uh, I, I would, but the people who were the most sensitive to it were white people. Um, if I described somebody as white and I think to see that shift for educators happening, but you know, in, in my career as an educator, I'm noticing that shift. And I think that the focus on beauty and not just the not seeing and the not valuing. Um, and I don't think anybody, well, man, I'm not going to say anybody, but I, 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 I think for a lot of people, it was an attempt to do right, uh, to not see and the seeing kids of who, who they really are and seeing their beauty. Um, if there's anything positive that comes out of it, I think it's the, the scene that a lot of people are doing now of our students and ourselves, really. I, I totally agree. I think white people have a lot of work to do. A lot of studying, a lot of thinking, a lot of listening, a lot of learning. And I think as teachers, we have a particular responsibility to make sure that that learning results in concrete changes in practice that lift up the cultural experiences and, again, the assets of the children in co of color that we teach. Absolutely. Yeah. So much to do, so many more books for us to get going on, <laughs> so much more research for you to do now. <laughs> Our thanks to Colleen and Nell for their time today. You can follow them both on Twitter. Visit blog.heineman.com to learn more. The most recent Not This But That title, No More Teaching Without Positive Relationships, can be found on heineman.com. Later this fall, keep an eye out for the next title in this series, No More Random Acts of Literacy Coaching. Nell and Colleen, along with their editor, Margaret Larea, are also working on two more upcoming titles, one focusing on trauma and one on technology. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George, sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette, and our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.